All right, well, thank you so much, everyone. My name is Philip Wolgan, and I'm the Managing Director for Immigration at the Center for American Progress. I'm really excited to be moderating this discussion with two top-notch scholars of unauthorized migration. The question of border security, of whether we do or do not have a secure border, and how exactly we measure what border security would actually mean, sits at the heart, this question really sits at the heart of every debate over immigration policy in this country, and it's what we'll be talking about today with two very different perspectives. So consider this. The U.S. now employs over 21,000 Border Patrol agents, and according to the Migration Policy Institute, we spend more each year on immigration enforcement than on all other federal law enforcement combined. On top of that, apprehensions at the southern border, a statistic which scholars use as sort of a rough proxy for the number of people trying to cross the border without status, well, those apprehensions are at near 40-year lows. But for all we know about the inputs, the, how many agents we have, how much technology in different sectors, et cetera, actually measuring what we know to be a secure border has been both elusive and divisive. Scholars are in general agreement that the unauthorized population peaked at about 12 million people in 2007 and has dropped ever since. According to the most recent estimates from the Center for Migration Studies, there are 10.9 million unauthorized immigrants in the U.S. today. So to put this another way, unauthorized immigration is declining, and, and for countries like Mexico, it's now net negative. But why this decline, and what's contributing to it? Without jumping too far ahead, one of the key questions we'll be debating today is whether border security has played a role in that decline, or frankly, whether border security has been largely ineffective, or at least has missed its intended targets. And I have to say, the answer to this question is more than merely academic. And, and really, how we define border security, whether, whether border security actually deters unauthorized migration, will be one of the key questions in any type of immigration reform conversation, whether next year or at any time in the future. If border security is effective at deterring unauthorized migration, then the question obviously becomes what types of border security are more effective than others? Should we be putting our limited resources toward, for example, building a wall, or maybe putting more boots on the ground, or more technology, or something else entirely? And if border security is not effective, given how much we currently spend on it each year, should we be putting these, this money and resources elsewhere? And are there parts of border security that are less effective than others? So here to bring some clarity to this issue are two of the leading scholars of the question. Douglas S. Massey is professor of sociology and public affairs at Princeton University and co-director of the Mexican Migration Project, an annual survey which has been gathering data on documented and undocumented migration from Mexico for nearly 30 years. Brian Roberts is an economist who has focused over the past decade on conducting quantitative research on issues related to border security and immigration policy. He has recently worked in the Institute for Defense Analyses and the consulting firms Econometrica and Nathan Associates. In 2010, he was the Assistant Director for Border and Immigration Programs at the Office of Program Analysis and Evaluation at the Department of Homeland Security. And he also previously worked in DHS's Office of Policy and its Science and Technology Directorate as an Economist and Program Manager. He holds a BA from the University of Pennsylvania and a PhD in Economics from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. So please join me in welcoming our panelists.
All right, Professor Massey, we'll start with you. It's a pleasure to be here today. Uh, I've been studying Mexican immigration, um, immigration from Latin America and immigration generally for a long time now. And um, one thing I've learned is that when Congress makes immigration policy, it doesn't make policy with any knowledge of immigration. And it is not really trying to achieve anything in the management of immigration. Politicians in Congress are responding to domestic political exigencies. Uh, how is it going to affect me in the next election? How can I use immigration as a tool to mobilize voters? How can I use it to gain resources for my agency or uh, support a cause I like? And when you look at American immigration policy, in many ways it tells you more about America's hopes and aspirations and its fears and apprehensions than anything else. And um, to understand where we are right now, we really have to go back into the 1960s. Uh, the 1960s were the civil rights era. And uh, the civil rights era was more about hopes and aspirations, righting past wrongs, ending Jim Crow, deracializing public policies that had been racialized for decades at the federal level. And so um, uh, uh, what I'm going to do is give you a short history lesson and then talk about where we are now and present some data. What you see on this screen is a summary of immigration flows from Mexico over the past uh, uh, 60 years. Uh, in the late 1950s, and you have three, three lines there. Let's see what the colors are here. The um, blue line here is legal immigration. The red line is temporary worker immigration. And uh, the green line here is uh, a proxy for undocumented migration. And that is uh, border apprehensions divided by the number of Border Patrol officers. If you have more officers, you're going to get more apprehensions. And by dividing by the number of Border Patrol officers, you get a rough proxy uh, uh, for, I'm not saying that this is the actual number of undocumented entries, but this is a good indicator of the trend in undocumented migration over time, and it's consistent with a lot of other data sources. So you see that back in the 1950s, uh, right, right after Operation Wetback ramped up apprehensions along the border, the United States was importing about 450,000 uh, guest workers into the country from Mexico every year. And uh, at about and illegal immig legal immigration, uh, permanent residents, was running at about 50,000 per year. So in the late 1950s, there were about half a million uh, Mexicans coming into the United States each year. 450,000 of them were, 90% of them were uh, circulating back and forth. And, if, and studies show that even among legal permanent residents, a huge fraction were using their permanent resident document actually as a de facto permanent guest worker visa and circulating back and forth. It was a heavily circular flow. In 1965 comes along uh, and it's hopes and aspirations. And the Civil Rights Act passes in 1964, the Voting Rights Act passes in 1965. And in 1965, Congress amends the Immigration and Nationality Act, not as a tool to achieve any objective for immigration necessarily, but to deracialize and deprejudice a system that had been put in place in the 1920s that had banned Asian immigration and African immigration and set up quotas to favor Northern and Western Europeans and uh, discriminate against Southern and Eastern Europeans, read Jews and Catholics, uh, and, uh, uh, and reduce the overall number of immigrants. 
So by the 1960s, it's the civil rights era, and Dan Rostenkowski is in charge of the House Ways and Means Committee, and Peter Rodino is in charge of the Judiciary Committee, and they're kind of bent out of shape about how Congress talked about their grandparents. And so immigration reform um, is really about civil rights and re redressing past wrongs. And it was debated very much as a civil rights era. The Southerners were against it because they were afraid it would change the racial composition of America. And one of the things they insisted on was if you're going to change the immigration system, we want to put a limit on immigration from the Western Hemisphere uh, because that's where brown people are. And so in 1965, Congress rewrote the Immigration Nationality Act, created a preference system that gave preferences to family member, members of relatives of family members already in the United States, a smaller segment to labor needs of the United States. Uh, and this was used to allocate visas outside the Western Hemisphere initially. The Western Hemisphere, before 1965, had no numerical limits on immigration. And so Mexicans could enter in uh, unlimited numbers. And in practical terms, it was about 50,000 per year. Uh, they capped the hemisphere at 120,000 visas. And by 1976, had ramped down uh, the quotas to 20,000 visas per country per year. And that's the global uh, quota system and a, and a global uh, cap of about 290,000 visas. <clears throat> Uh, also in 1965, uh, midnight between 1964 and 1965, Congress let the Bracero uh, legislation expire. The Bracero legislation had sponsored the temporary work uh, program known as the Bracero program that had brought in those half 450,000 workers in the late 1950s. So in 1965, there was a dramatic break. And Congress, if you read the debates, they didn't talk about how's it, we've got a mil, half a million people coming in from Mexico every year, how's this going to affect things? It was, oh, it's more about, you know, are there going to be a lot of Asians here? Uh, we want to keep more brown people out. Uh, those were the concerns at the time. And so what happened in 1965 is there was a massive break in the system. And uh, you see it there. And that's the genesis of the contemporary era of undocumented migration. You go suddenly from a system where you got half a million people coming into the United States with legal visas, most of them circulating, to a new system where the, the temporary worker program is gone and legal permanent resident visas are capped at 20,000. What happens? The flows had been established over the past two decades. All the migrants in Mexico are connected to employers in the United States. It was institutionalized into expectations and, and practices on both sides of the border the flow simply quickly reestablished itself under undocumented auspices, as you can see with the green line. It expands from 1965 to roughly 1979, 1980, and then really kind of stops growing and begins fluctuating. Uh, <clears throat> so um, uh, basically, we, during the uh, 1970s, the labor flows that had prevailed in the 50s were reestablished, only now the vast majority were circulating under undocumented auspices. And that created a, um, uh, a new dynamic whereby, since they're illegal migrants, illegal, by definition, they must be criminals and lawbreakers. And this gives rise to a new threat narrative in the American media, where Latinos in general and Mexicans in particular are portrayed as a grave threat to the nation. Uh, and uh, uh, a series of metaphors are brought out to explain this to the public. There's the flood metaphor, where illegal migrants are going to flood America, drown its culture, and inundate society. Uh, but over time, the, one, the metaphor that really won out was the martial metaphor of the United States as being invaded by an alien army uh, and its uh, 
territory was being occupied. Uh, migrants were launching bonsai charges at the border. Uh, 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 border patrol officers were trying to hold the line against the alien hordes. Uh, hold, uh, these are all um, terms that are, were, were widely used. And you can see this in the, in the, in the figure here. Uh, I did a, a content analysis of leading newspapers, the Washington Post, the New York Times, the LA Times, and the Wall Street Journal, and looked at references to uh, uh, Mexican immigration as a flood, crisis, or invasion uh, in leading newspapers. And you can see that the rise in these metaphors parallel the rise in undocumented migration. And they peak about the same time undocumented migration peaks and then begin to fluctuate. But every time there's a peak, there's another piece of anti-immigrant legislation or anti-immigrant policy that is enacted. What this did was set off a, a dynamic where you had this exogenous effect uh, from outside the system where there was a massive change in policy and suddenly illegal migration begins because there's no opportunities for legal entry of a well-established legal system. And illegal migration increases. So you get a big increase in legal, illegal entries, which of course um, drives up apprehensions, which becomes the visible manifestation of illegal migration, pushes the country in a very conservative direction. Uh, and these are parameterized estimates that I use from the General Social Survey and other sources, federal sources of uh, data. And that drives a move towards restrictive legislation, restrictive operations, increasing the number of Border Patrol agents, the size of the Border Patrol. Uh, and then in the end, that produces more line watch hours, hours spent patrolling the border. So if you have more people and more resources devoted to catching people on the border, you catch more people on the border. And so that feeds back on the system to drive up apprehensions. So illegal migration actually peaks in 1979 and begins to fluctuate with no real secular trend thereafter. But apprehensions continue to rise, not because more people are coming, but because more and more effort is put into catching those who are coming. And, uh, and uh, it becomes a self-perpetuating dynamic every year Apprehensions increase. The head of the Border Patrol, or INS at the time, gets out and puts out a press release. The alien invasion is continuing because apprehensions are, arriving, are, are rising. Therefore, we need more resources. More resources are made available. More apprehensions, and it becomes a self-perpetuating cycle. And you can see this in the next table here. You see, this is our uh, standardized index where we divide apprehensions by people looking for them. That's the that's the index of the trend. This is the raw number of apprehensions. Just keeps going up and up and up, even though the trend really has flattened out. And this resulted in a progressive militarization of the border, this, this self-defeating dynamic, exacerbated by things like the Cold War uh, during the Contra War and the War on Terror uh, in the 90s and 2000s. Uh, and uh, you can see this massive increase in uh, uh, border enforcement. This is the, in, in 2013 dollars, this is the Border Patrol's budget in real terms. And you can see it's flat from 1970 uh, to 1986 when the Immigration Reform and Control Act passes to start the process. It starts it very slowly. And then in the mid-1990s, a whole series of laws were passed in 1996, really boosted it up. And that peaks here. And then 2000. Um, uh, the, the 2000, essentially is the line of the graph. This right here is a 2001 Patriot Act, and that just puts it uh, through the roof. Now remember that uh, 
illegal migration inflows are probably peaked right, right about here. So all this is occurring well after the flows had peaked. And really, by 2000, the flows are already beginning to decline into the United States. So this massive militarization, which was completely disconnected from the underlying traffic along the border, occurred. And it had pronounced effects, not necessarily the ones that were intended. Um, I'm going to just read out what the effects were. And then I'm going to show you data that uh, supports the views that I outline. At the border, the effect of militarization on border outcomes transformed the geography of border crossing, shifting the places that migrants used to cross, and also, incidentally, in, uh, shifted the geography of migrant settlement, shift, creating a whole set of new destinations throughout the United States. It also increased the use of coyotes, or border smugglers. It increased the cost of using coyotes. It had actually no effect or limited effect on the probability of border apprehensions, despite all the resources put into it. And uh, it had uh, virtually no effect on the likelihood of ultimately getting into the United States. Uh, but it did increase the risk of death and injury during border crossing. So that's the, what the changing reality on the border. And how did these changing realities affect migrant behavior? Well, according to the data that we marshal, there was no effect on the likelihood of a first, taking a first undocumented trip. So you're not discouraging somebody from leaving for the United States uh, without documents. Um, but it did drastically decrease the likelihood of return from a first trip. And it decreased the likelihood of taking an additional trip and the likelihood of returning from an additional trip. So it didn't stop the basic inflow, but it really stopped the outflow. And that had uh, serious consequences. Now, I'm going to be drawing from now on. Most of the data that I uh, gave before were publicly available data uh, from surveys or from the government in the United States. Now I'm going to use data from the Mexican Migration Project, which I've been running with my colleague Jorge Durand at the University of Guadalajara uh, since 1982. And we've been collecting data every year in the field, doing surveys of communities throughout Mexico. <laughs> Uh, and we go into a community, take a representative sample, find out uh, who in each household has ever been to the United States. For everybody who's ever been to the United States, we collect information on the first trip, the most recent trip, the total number of trips. Uh, the information includes uh, uh, wages, working conditions, destinations, state, uh, metropolitan area of residence, and, uh, 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 and legal status. Uh, and then for each household head, and then later on in the data series, uh, spouses as well, we collect a complete history of migration and border crossing, beginning from roughly whenever they left school uh, to the time of the survey. And we know information about every time they went headed out to the United States, what, the, what happened to them at the border, how many times they're apprehended, if they ultimately got in, where they went, uh, and uh, what they did. Uh, and those, and all this data, as you can see, this is a website, are publicly available. So from the very beginning, this was a public database. And we currently have about 4,000 data users, including many from the Department of Homeland Security, I might add, um, uh, that make use of the Mexican Migration Project database. It's the largest compila compilation, to my knowledge, of information uh, on the uh, movement back and forth of documented and undocumented migrants from Mexico to the United States. The surveys in Mexico are complemented by surveys in the United States of people who have settled in 
the United States and no longer return back. Most of the surveys historically we've done in the winter months when migrants were circulating back. Now this has become more difficult because they don't circulate anymore as we'll see. Uh, and what I'm going to do is uh, I estimate a series of equations and I'm focusing on the US context and the Mexican context, controlling for demographic background, human capital, social capital, physical capital, region of origin, and community size. That's just all held constant in the background. And what I'm focusing on uh, is the US con context. And the key uh, variable is, of course, uh, border enforcement. And this is an instrumental variable we estimated to uh, uh, eliminate endogeneity from the um, uh, from uh, the enforcement effort, uh, and uh, uh, it's the log of the border patrol. It's a log of the instrument of a border patrol budget over time, and um, <coughs> we also control for the rate of employment growth in the United States, the relative access to residents and work visas, and the U.S. minimum daily wage, the crude birth rate in Mexico, the rate of GDP, GDP growth in Mexico, the homicide rate in Mexico, and the Mexican minimum daily wage. So we're trying to hold as best we can economic and social circumstances on both sides of the border constant and look at the effect of border enforcement. And so the rest of the evidence is going to, I'm going to present in a series of figures. And what they show here uh, is uh, the observed probability of crossing at a traditional location predicted from our Mexican migration project data from the uh, life histories of all these different household heads that we've accumulated, which are hundreds of thousands of person years of observation at this point. <clears throat> and the solid line is the observed uh, figure that we get when we just calculate the data and estimate it as a simple estimate. And the dashed line is what we get as a predicted value from the model. When we, the only thing we vary over time is the border enforcement effort as measured by a log instrument of the Border Patrol budget and hold everything else in that model constant. And so um, you see the raw trend is that everybody crossed at the same place through around 1986, 1987. IRCA happens, and uh, IRCA, uh, Immigration Reform and Control Act, targets the busiest border crossings initially, of course, El Paso and San Diego. And uh, then this begins a process of decline that occurs over time. Uh, and uh, it really takes an acceleration in the early 1990s, 1993, 1994, 1993, Operation Blockade is launched in El Paso, a full-scale militarization of that sector. And then 1994, Operation Gatekeeper in, uh, in uh, San Diego in that sector. Uh, 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 full militarization there. And of course, uh, migrants initially walk into this wall of enforcement resources that, that wasn't there before, and suddenly they're caught. And so the next time they try, they avoid the, uh, the buildup areas. And so the net effect was to channel uh, migration away from El Paso and San Diego into the Sonoran Desert and through Arizona. Prior to 1993, 1994, the Arizona sector was a complete backwater. There hadn't been significant immigration into Arizona from Mexico for, uh, since the 1920s. And uh, the number of crossings that occurred along the, Mexico, the Arizona portion of the border was very small. Yikes. <clears throat> so um, as you can see, the, the effect uh, of, of, of the militarization was to, in fact, shift the points of border crossing. 
it uh, increased the likelihood of crossing with a coyote. You see the raw trend and the trend predicted from the um, uh, border enforcement effort, the dash line. Uh, people always used a lot of uh, border crossing guides to come into the United States. Uh, but what the militarization did, turned it in from a, a very common thing into a 100% thing, where everybody now crosses with border crossing guides, whereas back in 1970, it was only about 3 quarters crossed with crossing guides. <clears throat> It also dramatically increased the costs of border crossing, uh, changing it from about um, uh, an average of about $500 in real terms through the late 1980s, uh, and then accelerating up into uh, 2010 when we cut off the data here, it was about uh, $2,700. Uh, uh, it's now, according to the latest data from the Mexican Migration Project from 2014, it's pushing $5,000. Um, so it did increase the costs of border crossing, um, and um, it also increased the risks of border crossing. So here's the, uh, the, the dashed line is the effect of, um, of the border militarization on the raw number of deaths counted along the border by year. And you see it roughly explains the trend. So um, things at the border changed quite dramatically. Uh, so what's a poor migrant to do? Well, that depends on what happens to them when they attempt to cross. So what you have here, the solid line is the observed probability of apprehension over time, which basically ranges between 20.2 uh, and 0.4 and averages about 0.33 uh, over this period from 1970 to 2010 with very little trend. And you see that the effect of border enforcement was really quite minor. And a slight increase over time, but that increase in statistical terms was not significant and certainly not commensurate with the exponential increase in border enforcement effort. The, the dotted line at the very top is the probability of ultimately gaining entry over a series of attempts. And you can see that through 2006, 2005, the probability of getting in across a number of attempts was about 1.0, about 100%. Um, afterwards, it begins to fall off, and maybe that's an indication of border enforcement's final, finally having an effect. Maybe it's not. It's very difficult to tell using these data because very few people are migrating after 2007, 2008, and the number, and it very, you don't get very stable estimates. <clears throat> and um, this is the um, uh, uh, the observed. This this actually is, doesn't look at. This looks at the observed probability of taking a first undocumented trip to the United States. That's the solid line. And then the dashed line is the effect of border enforcement, which you see is nil. Uh, and um, you see a dotted line. And that's the um, effect of the average age of people at, the, at risk of migrating to the United States without documents. And that has been going up and up and up. And I'll come back to that in a second. So it's really the shift in the average age of the Mexican population that has pushed down the rates, uh, the probabilities of migration in recent years. Um, this um, repeats the analysis, only now we've got the observed decline, the dark line. The dotted line shows predicting from Mexican fundamentals only, the Mexican conditions only, and the dashed line uh, is what you get when you predict from the US fundamentals only. And so you see the fundamentals haven't changed that much. And if, if, the, fu and if, if was, uh, the fundamentals 
are, are not driving the downward, downward slope of the migrants. It's really the average, the average age, as you see here. <clears throat> this shows the um, probability of returning from a first trip. Uh, and as, as you can see, it's spiky, but it goes down. And the, the trend is really explained largely by the increase in border enforcement. So um, conclusions then, from 1986 to 2010, the United States spent about $35 billion in border enforcement. And in so doing, transformed what had been a circular flow of male workers going to three states into a settled population of families living in 50 states. In the 1990s particularly, the effect of border enforcement had, was nil on the probability of leaving for the United States, but profound on the probability of returning to Mexico from the United States. And that increased the net inflow. And that's why you saw in Giovanni's slides that, they, that all of a sudden there's all these unskilled workers coming in in the 1990s. They were, they're always coming in. The difference is in the 1990s, they're not going home because it's too costly and risky to circulate back and forth, so they settled. And by pushing the flows away from California, it transformed what had been a regional flow affecting California, Texas, and Illinois into a truly national population. It reduced out-migration while leaving in-migration unchanged to double the net rate of undocumented migration and increase undocumented population growth, created a population of 11 million people undocumented U.S. residents, 60% of whom are Mexicans and two-thirds of, 60% of Mexican immigrants are undocumented, and about two-thirds of Central American immigrants are currently undocumented, all while attempting to end undocumented flow that would have ended on its own accord after 2000 because of the demographic transition in Mexico, where the demographic transition shifted the fertility rate in Mexico from seven children per woman in 1960 to 2.2, 2.3 children per woman today and Mexico has become an aging society. Uh, and rates of labor force growth are decelerating. Uh, the uh, cities of Mexico have, have below replacement fertility. Uh, and uh, Mexico's average age has steadily risen and is now about 28 years. The average age in Mexico is 28 years. And if you look at any migration curve, it has a very characteristic pattern. It's flat. And then about 15 or 16, it goes up, peaks 21, 22 years old, and then declines abruptly and flattens out again over age 30. If you don't migrate between the ages of 15 and 30, you're unlikely to migrate at all. And what happened in Mexico is that Mexico's become an aging society, average age has increased, and that has driven undocumented migration down to very low levels to the point where it's now zero and has been for the last eight years. It's actually negative in terms from, from Mexico alone. So um, that's the current Mexico-US border. Uh, my back is to the Pacific Ocean. I'm standing on a hill. The left is to the United States. The right is, um, is uh, Tijuana. Uh, and um, just for a sake of comparison, this is the Korean demilitarized zone. Um, this, these are the two most, it's a misnomer, the demilitarized zone, because they're the two most militarized borders anywhere in the world today. Okay, we're all set. Uh, I'd like to thank Alex and Cato for inviting me to come here today. Um, I'm going to talk about illegal immigration outcomes on the southern border. What are they and why have they changed? 
I want to start with some disclaimers. All opinions expressed today are my personal views and do not necessarily reflect uh, those of the U U.S. government or any office in it. I also want to really stress that my analysis I'm presenting is positive. It's not normative. I'm trying to understand what actually happened through 2015. I am not making any evaluations or recommendations on what should have happened or what should have happened in the future. I apologize. I have a lot of slides to go through. I'm going to go through them quickly. The topics are, A, what do Americans believe about illegal immigration? B, what border enforcement measures need to be reported? C, what are estimates of these measures for the southern border? D, why has illegal migration across the southern border changed? Um, and E, what challenges exist with respect to measuring and reporting outcomes uh, related to these, these phenomena? First, what do Americans believe about illegal immigration? They believe that it has increased in recent years. A 2015 poll, the most recent national poll, uh, asked, your best guess, do you think the number of immigrants coming to the U.S. illegally has increased or decreased in the past few years? 69% of those polled believe that it has increased. Uh, and that holds true for any breakdown across uh, political affiliation or um, liberal, moderate, and conservative, and any other socio-demographic breakdown that you can do with that poll's data. If you go back and look at the polling data from 2000 to 2015, it also shows that large majorities of Americans have believed that the border is insecure, quote unquote insecure, um, and that the US is not doing enough to prevent illegal immigration across its borders. These are the perceptions. B, what border enforcement measures need to be reported? I have argued with my, my colleagues, John Whitley and Ted Alden, that um, the following three measures are really the core measures. Uh, the first and the most important is the number of successful illegal entries. Uh, that's really what uh, immigration enforcement is designed to prevent. And two other measures should be reported, the probability of apprehension, which is the average chance that someone will be caught when attempting illegal entry, uh, and the probability of at-the-border deterrence, which is if you're caught, and subjected to any legal consequence, uh, and your return to your home country, what is the chance that you try again? Um, number one is the strategic outcome. That is of the first order importance. And number two and three are key outputs of, uh, outputs of border law enforcement. And we have argued that all of these measures should be reported in a performance management framework. The scope of estimates that could be developed for illegal immigration are uh, broad. Borders are complex. They include land, sea, and air borders. There are two very long land borders, uh, the southern and northern. The southern gets all the attention. Uh, there are also different entry domains. Uh, there are ports of entry, and there are between ports of entry. Um, it, it's my view that the US government should, should develop estimates uh, of all of the key flows and stocks related to illegal immigration. The focus today is going to be on the southern border between ports of entry. Um, that's where most illegal immigration into the US is believed to have taken place. There's a map of the border, uh, not as dramatic as, as Doug's photos, but um, it shows that the, the border is uh, uh, 2,000 miles long, and it's, it's punctuated at various points uh, with ports of entry where people can legally go back and forth between the two countries. And in between these ports are very long stretches of, uh, of terrain that can be completely empty and depopulated or can be uh, somewhat populated with semi-rural areas or small towns. What are estimates that we have for these measures? Well, this is the 
the measure that uh, DHS and its predecessor organization uh, has traditionally reported, which are apprehensions. This shows apprehensions from 1925 to 2015, and uh, Doug has already talked about uh, this data, but I think this graph is interesting in that it shows that recently there's been a very, very big structural change uh, in that the number of apprehensions of Mexican nationals has fallen quite a bit, and the, the number of apprehensions of non-Mexican nationals has risen quite a bit. Uh, but apprehensions are not a good measure uh, they're not a measure at all of the key strategic outcome, which is successful illegal entries. What has the government done to go beyond that? It first felt pressure to report measures in the 1990s after the GIPRA Act, and a series of measures were subsequently published and then withdrawn and abandoned over the next uh, 25 years. This is documented in a study uh, published by the Bipartisan Policy Center in 2015. Um, Current efforts center on known flow data, which is collected by the US Border Patrol. And known flow data comprises three distinct uh, types of data. Apprehensions, um, which include those who were caught, but not necessarily trying to evade. Apprehensions are of people who are trying to evade. They're also of people who are not trying to evade, and that's an important point. Uh, turnbacks, the Border Patrol makes estimates of those observed to uh, enter the US and then uh, leave back into Mexico, perhaps because they felt they were seen by Border Patrol and they wanted to um, get back without being caught. Gotaways, finally, are estimates of those who actually successfully evaded Border Patrol. Um, gotaways are estimated on the basis of a variety of evidence that Border Patrol systematically collects and processes. DHS today reports as its core southwest border security performance measure something called the interdiction effectiveness ratio, the IER. And what is it? Uh, my equation was altered to be a line. Uh, it's the ratio of apprehensions plus turnbacks to apprehensions plus turnbacks plus gotaways. Simple ratio. Um, it is intended to suggest what the probability of apprehension is. Uh, Border Patrol's estimate of gotaways are also an estimate of successful illegal entries. Unfortunately, it is my view that these measures, based on known flow data, are not credible. And the reason is that, first, gotaways systematically underestimate the true number of successful illegal entries uh, for uh, well-understood reasons. They're going to be successful entries by people that you observe no evidence for whatsoever. Um, also, the interdiction effectiveness rate is fundamentally flawed. It has no clear interpretation as a measure. Uh, it does not measure the probability of apprehension. It includes apprehension of people not trying to evade Border Patrol, for example, some asylum seekers who are turning themselves into Border Patrol. Uh, and it also is analytically illegitimate to include turnbacks additively. So any measure that combines data on evaders and non-evaders and or includes turnbacks is going to be fundamentally flawed. Although this data is useful for other purposes, uh, it should not be used to estimate key border security measures. So what's an alternative? Analytically-based estimates. Um, an approach that has been extensively used since 1990 is the repeat trials model. It's based on the following simple conception of the process of, of uh, illegal entry. A migrant comes to the border and attempts illegal entry. If they're caught, they're returned to Mexico or their home country after application of any consequence. And then they decide whether or not to try again or to cease and to return home or perhaps uh, live in the border region. 
This model has been used to measure successful illegal entries and the probability of apprehension for a long time. It was first used by Thomas Espenshade, uh, and that was published in a canonical book in 1990, a foundational book. Uh, it was used by Doug and Audrey Singer in 1995. They used data from the M&P survey to estimate these two uh, measures. And more recently, it's, it's been used by Joe Chang in a study using Border Patrol apprehension records, which has not been publicly released by the uh, Department of Homeland Security. Backup slides to this presentation, which will be publicly available, uh, provide a more technical explanation of the model. Uh, there are a lot of potential data sources to estimate these measures using the repeat trials model, and in general, to analyze the phenomenon of migration from Mexico to the United States. Um, a lot of this research, I guess the color, does it show? Okay, sorry, I had some animation. Uh, there we go. A lot of the research has used the data of the Mexican Migration Project, which uh, for many, many years was really the only uh, source of data, and it's generated an immense literature and a lot of insights uh, into the nature of migration from, from Mexico to the US. I'm going to present research that is based on uh, Two other sources. First, the, the EMIF survey. Sorry, the red's not appearing. This is a, a survey that's conducted by a Mexican research institute, COLEF. And they, they survey, uh, they do extensive surveying of people uh, in the border region, including those who were caught by law enforcement authorities in the US and returned. Um, and also, I'm going to use US Border Patrol apprehension records. Uh, there's an excellent study, 2012, that reviews all of these many surveys that could potentially be used. And if you're interested, I highly recommend it. It's very thorough. Um, recent analytical estimates. Well, DHS recently commissioned the Institute for Defense Analyses to make estimates of the three measures for the between ports domain on the southern border, the at ports domain on the southern border, and in the maritime domain, people trying to uh, come in uh, by boat. The data used was DHS internal uh, administrative records, as well as the EMIF migrant survey. This report hasn't been made available to the public, so I can't present its results today. What I can present are results based on publicly available data, the EMIF survey and aggregate apprehension data that DHS publishes on its website. Um, uh, I do, the, these estimates are not as uh, high quality as the, the Ida study estimates, but I can't present them. Um, this chart shows estimated successful illegal entries between ports of entry on the southern border, all nationalities. They exclude asylum seeker apprehensions who I, I believe largely turn themselves into enforcement authorities once they arrive at the border. And uh, that shows estimated illegal entries uh, from 2005 to 2015. And it's a 95% drop. This is an estimate of the, at the border deterrence rate. If you're caught by Border Patrol and returned to Mexico, what is the chance that you will give up trying to uh, re-enter and uh, go home or, or make alternative arrangements and, and not attempt illegal entry? Um, and from 2005 to 2010, that uh, probability was at fairly low levels, 15%, uh, maybe 20%. That's consistent with what Doug showed earlier. Uh, but after 2010, it has risen dramatically. It's a real structural change in behavior at the border. 
And the plausible explanation for this is that it's driven by uh, consequences that Border Patrol is, uh, has been instituting uh, on a large scale since 2010. Finally, the estimated probability of apprehension, that's a chance you're going to be caught on average, and that uh, is estimated using the publicly available data. Uh, it's risen from 20% to 30% through 2010 to about a little over 50% today. Which is, again, uh, a, uh, there's been a, a significant rise. Um, why has illegal migration across the southern, southern border changed? Well, illegal migration from Mexico is influenced by economic conditions in the US, economic conditions in Mexico, law enforcement efforts against illegal migration, the ease of migrating legally, demographic change in Mexico, all factors that, that Doug emphasized in his talk and has incorporated in his research. I'm going to present uh, an alternative view using different data. Um, this is based on both 2012 unpublished research uh, that was updated by IDA this year. Uh, I unfortunately don't have a paper available on it yet. I also can only show results that are based on publicly available data. It's possible to do this research using DHS administrative internal records. Uh, the results are going to be higher quality if that's done, but I'm showing you what I can present based on publicly available data. We use the Inouye Household Survey. That's the Mexican equivalent of the American Community Survey. It is a nationally representative survey done on a quarterly basis. And this survey, when it surveys a household, it observes migration events in the household, when somebody leaves the household to migrate abroad. Um, it does not identify legal versus illegal immigration, so we develop an approach to estimating the probability somebody's migrating illegally based on observed characteristics. We take advantage of the EMIF migrant survey to do that. We also are going to restrict our sample to working age men with less than post-secondary education because that's the group that has the highest propensity to illegally migrate. Our economic explanatory variables are going to be the US unemployment rate and the Mexican expected wage rate. Uh, enforcement explanatory variables include Border Patrol enforcement as captured by the number of agents uh, and the consequences, the number of misdemeanor and felony prosecutions. We use many control variables. We also control for endogeneity of border enforcement um, using an instrument that's based on the Border Patrol budgetary process. The backup slides go very extensively into the methodology. I will say we are identifying impacts of economic and enforcement variables by taking advantage of geographic variation across the border and across Mexican communities where ENOA is implemented and across states of the United States. So the research is, is, is different uh, from previous re research, both in terms of the data that it's using and the methodological uh, approach that it's uh, using and the variation that it's taking advantage of. This is the overall US unemployment rate. It shows we had a great recession. It also shows that we've had an economic recovery afterwards. And this is also reflected in uh, higher hirings and job openings in the construction, manufacturing, and food service accommodation sectors. Uh, there has been a recovery in job openings in these sectors as well as hires. Uh, this is the variable we use. Uh, this it's the, for the Mexican economic conditions. It's the it's the expected income that a person in the Inouye survey can expect to receive in Mexico. It's their expected wage multiplied times the probability of actually getting a job. And this graph shows that that has not actually risen in the Inouye sample uh, over the last 10 years. 
Here's the Border Patrol agents. Uh, Doug already talked about that. Uh, finally, this shows prosecutions of border crossers, misdemeanor and felony. There's been an increase in, in both. This has been part of the border enforcement intensification over the last decade. The preliminary results, based on publicly available data, um, suggest that uh, enforcement has had a significant impact on the decision of people who are migrating illegally. Um, it also suggests that whereas misdemeanor prosecutions had no significant impact, felony prosecutions have had a significant impact. That's consistent with that rise in the, the at-the-border uh, deterrence rate that I showed earlier. And finally, that, um, that uh, US, U.S. economic conditions are marginally significant and m the Mexican uh, expected income variable is highly significant. Right. I can't believe I've gotten this far. Um, <laughs> um, I didn't do so well in my practice this morning. Counterfactual simulations. We take these regression results and we predict historical levels of aggregate illegal immigration of this population from Mexico. So we basically do a historical prediction using actual historical values of all of our explanatory variables. And then we simulate counterfactual scenarios. We simulate what would have happened if explanatory variables remained constant at their 2005 level. We first hold enforcement variables constant, that's both agents and consequences, and we then hold ec economic variables constant. Demographic change in Mexico should be captured in these counterfactuals because of the Inoue survey weights, which are capturing the demographic change. And here's the results. Uh, the blue shows the historical prediction of the regression model using actual values. Then when we hold constant agent and consequence uh, values at their 2005 level, uh, you can see that if, that if that enforcement buildup hadn't taken place, we would have expected a, a rise. The counterfactual suggests that there would have been a rise in, in the flow. And finally, the economy variables, that's the red. We can see that uh, as the Great Recession started, it had a very powerful impact on migration decisions of individuals. But that as the recovery took place, that impact lessened over time. And what this counterfactual graph is really saying is that in the absence of enforcement, we would have expected recovery in the flow of people from Mexico to the US. Uh, but that enforcement plausibly has, uh, for the first time, introduced a disconnect between the US business cycle and illegal migration from Mexico. Um, positive analysis, not normative. A new flow, asylum seekers. This has been an important phenomenon that's developed uh, sin since 2012. Uh, a new flow of migrants has emerged, asylum seekers from Central American countries. The determinants and dynamics of this flow requires its own separate analysis. Uh, I think many in the room will remember the debate that broke out in 2014 over whether this flow is affected primarily by root causes such as crime and poverty or by US policies, actual or perceived. Um, I don't think these explanations are mutually exclusive. I, I also think, based on uh, statistical research, that root causes can explain the underlying reason why the flows have emerged, but they cannot explain the dynamics of the flow over time. Finally, what challenges exist with respect to measuring and reporting outcomes related to illegal immigration? First, can the executive branch produce and report credible estimates? Well, I would argue that to date it has been crippled by an overriding concern with political optics at every level 
bureaucratic obstruction and a lack of analytical cap capabilities, and this has led to 25 years of failure. Um, Congress has had to specify in detail over time what DHS should report, but that's often, well, that's been ignored in the past. And DHS secretaries can change at will what's reported to the public, as evidenced by the instability in reported measures. It may be the case that Congress and the public might have more confidence in a third party conducting this work, and alternatives such as con a congressional commission or outsourcing to an independent institution should be considered. Two, can the executive branch share information? Producing and reporting credible estimates is simply not enough. Um, DHS is going to have to earn credibility by sharing its data, methods, and results with the research community. It needs to establish a partnership with the research community. That partnership was present in the 1980s, uh, but it's long ago disappeared. This must be done on a completely level, depoliticized playing field. Many federal agencies routinely share very sensitive data with external researchers. Uh, Bureau of the Census has done this for a long time. There's ways to share data while protecting confidentiality. Uh, DHS resistance to data sharing is very fierce. Finally, technical challenges. It goes without saying, measuring flows that are seeking to uh, escape detection is analytically challenging, but research to date has showed that it is possible to credibly do this. Research can always be improved. If the government gets serious about measurement and engages with the research community, a process of improvement would, would take place. Um, and as an economist, I would simply note that all of the economic estimates produced by the government are subjected to uncertainties and biases that have been debated fiercely for decades. Uh, yet the government still measures and reports price inflation, the unemployment rate, and GDP growth. All you have to do is read the economic press to see how fierce the debate about the unemployment rate has been Bureau of Labor Statistics is still estimating and reporting it. So some conclusions, successful illegal entries between ports of entry on the southern border have fallen dramatically over the past decade. Enforcement has played a significant role in bringing this about, both through uh, higher, probability uh, higher probability of apprehension, but also uh, application of consequences. Uh, a new flow of asylum seekers from Central America has emerged. The US public is largely unaware of the dramatic fall in illegal immigration, and the US government faces challenges in establishing its credibility in this area. I would like to thank the following uh, people, Secretary Jay Johnson, Secretary Michael Chertoff, and the people who work for them, for both secretaries, who have supported and enabled good research. And there's some very fine people in that group. Uh, John Whitley and the Ida research team, uh, the retired Chief of U.S. Border Patrol, Michael Fisher. Ted Alden, who is here. Teresa Brown of Bipartisan Policy Center, who's also here. Uh, Gordon Hansen, an economist at uh, the University of California, San Diego. And Scott Borger, another economist formerly employed by DHS who played an absolutely key role in the research uh, about that led to that counterfactual chart. And all of the many other people who have sought to inform a very contentious issue with objective and rigorous analysis over many decades. Robert Warren, Jeff Bissell, Doug Massey, Jorge Durand, Frank Bean, Lindsey Lowell, and many others. I could write out 70 names. I have no time to go through them. Thank you. All right, well, thank you so much to both of you. I found this to be a really fascinating discussion with two, I think, very well-crafted models at their heart. Nevertheless, you do both come to opposite conclusions. So Not I really. want to dig in a little bit more. Well, at least a bit. So I guess, I mean, 
to me, it seems like the key question comes down to this. Um, Doug, as you framed it, would unauthorized migration have stopped, at least from Mexico, on its own accord, at least after 2000, without that strong border security? And how much weight do we actually assign to demographic and economic explanations, both in the US and in Mexico? And how much do we assign to things like enforcement and consequences in particular. So I'll put that both to you just to kind of summarize this. Where do you fall on those? <clears throat> well, just a reflection on what we've seen here to frame it. Um, actually, my analysis goes from 1965-2010, and uh, during that period of time, our analyses are pretty much consistent with one another. Uh, there's not much of a difference. Uh, uh, I don't, my data I don't do the analysis after 2010, and which is when uh, he starts picking up these effects. It's true that the uh, number of successful entries has plummeted over time, but the main reason, at least through 2010, was because very few people are trying to get into the country from Mexico. So successful entries depend on the number of people trying, and that's dropped and uh, to a very, very low level. Historically low, low levels we haven't seen uh, really for four or five decades. Uh, the, the only, uh, my skepticism is the post-19, post-2010 numbers. Because uh, post-2010, there are very, very few Mexicans trying to get into the United States. So we're basing estimates off of very small numbers. That's, and I said that in my presentation about the MMP data, it's really hard to come up with a stable estimate of the probability of apprehension when you've got five people attempting out of your sample in a given year. Um, they've got larger samples in the apprehensions, but still the number of Mexicans who are attempting to enter the United States uh, by all measures uh, are at record lows. Uh, the number of Mexican apprehensions haven't been this low since the early, late 1960s, early 1970s. And net um, is negative. So um, Mexican migration is basically over. I think, and it, uh, illegal migration is basically over, and it was over by 2010. Uh, and that was largely attributable to the demographic shift in Mexico. We could uh, debate about the uh, deterrent effect of, uh, of, of, um, of border enforcement today. Uh, I don't have any information either way. Uh, it could be, uh, we, we know that a lot of what used to be just run-of-the-mill um, uh, uh, stuff involving uh, border crossing has now been criminalized so that uh, back in the day um, almost every Mexican who got apprehended was given a voluntary departure and just exited, left to go back home, ushered back to the border and then they tried again. Now a lot end up in the immigration detention system and th that could very well have uh, serious effects. But whatever the effects are, it's almost moot because hardly anybody's trying to come to the United States. And most of the people that are apprehended along the border, at least according to, uh, to the data that I've seen, from, including from AMIF, are people that have been previously deported that are trying to get back in because they have families and lives uh, on the U.S. side. So um, uh, before 1910, I think um, our data are pretty consistent in showing that enforcement had relatively little effect. It was largely driven by more uh, economic fundamentals and demographic fundamentals. Uh, after 2010, uh, it, it's, it's, it's hard to say because so few Mexicans are actually trying to migrate into the United States. And one thing that none, neither of us mentioned at this point is that quietly, 
without anybody really paying much attention, there's been a huge revival in temporary worker migration from Mexico. Uh, and according to, uh, it's hard to tell because of technical reasons, the way that um, uh, uh, DHS presents, it captures crossings now, um, but it looks like around 350,000 um, Mexicans enter the United States each year on temporary work visas, and about 150 to 200,000 enter on permanent residence visas. And our data from the Mexican Migration Project, which picks up a large number of these people, shows that um, these people are circulating back and forth. Uh, of course, the people with temporary workers, uh, temporary visas do it, but a growing number of the legal immigrants are actually circulating back and forth, uh, even though they have the right to remain in the United States. And so you've got this ironic situation where you've got 11 million undocumented migrants basically trapped in the United States because they can't circulate, and the legal component from Mexico is increasingly circulating back and forth. So we're kind of back to the status quo ante of the late 1950s, except now we have 11 million people living in the United States out of status, which is causing huge political problems domestically. Um, so I should, I should note that I'm one of those people in DHS who... Um, I got my start in all this using the MMP data. I'm one of those people that Doug mentioned before, and, and I became aware of, of the, the nature of how data is collected, and um, it, 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 it is a, a survey that doesn't capture that much information on illegal trips made in very recent years. And of course, that's, as Doug said, that's fallen to effectively zero over the last five years in the MMP sample. The, the data that we're using, uh, the the uh, Inouye survey, that's a, uh, it's like the American Community Survey, that's capturing a, uh, a significantly larger number of observed migration events. Uh, it's still a relatively rare, rare event in the Inouye data, um, but there's enough there that, that uh, I think y you can make uh, stable estimates. The EMIF survey is capturing data on uh, about 1,500 uh, uh, migrants who've been uh, returned to Mexico every year. So that's that's a pretty large sample. It's directly going to the border crossing points and it's uh, interviewing uh, uh, Mexicans as they're being repatriated. Um, so we have the advantage of having uh, significantly larger samples. But I, I completely agree that bringing into the analysis um, the expansion of the use of temporary worker visas uh, in recent years is important. Um, and that's, I think, going to require using data on temporary worker visas uh, at the individual level. And that's another data source that uh, the Department of Homeland Security has that needs to be brought into the research mix. It needs to be made available to researchers so that they can use that data. I, I have not been able to do it yet. Um, so um, a final point I would say is about uh, the economic factors. The economic data from 1870 to now do not show any evidence that income levels and standards of living in Mexico and the U.S. are actually converging. Uh, this, is, this came as a big surprise to me a few years ago when I started looking at the data on this, but that is apparently the, the, the empirical reality. Um, if you look at per capita GDP levels in real PPP dollars from 1870 to now, um, the ratio has hovered between three and four uh, for 150 years, longer maybe. Um, when you look at uh, 
comparison of wage rates using household survey data in both countries, there's really no sign of convergence. A study was done in the early 2000s to try to evaluate the impacts of NAFTA, and, and one could sense that there was a great hope among the researchers, one of whom was Bill Easterly, um, that there would be signs of convergence. What they found evidence for was signs of something called conditional convergence, that in the long run, U.S. and Mexican income levels would converge to a permanent gap of about 2.7, which means that really the economic uh, gap is, seems to be something of a very long-run structural feature. Maybe one day that will change. It will always be there as, as, a, as an inducement, a, a potential uh, stimulus to, to, to migrate. So I guess, I, I mean, just to push that a little bit, I know we, we don't have that much time, but what about the demographic argument that, that Doug is making in terms of the lack of people who might be able to migrate? Where does that fit in? I think that definitely uh, will, will diminish the flow over time. I don't think it will lead it to zero. Right, okay. I think a lot of the flow is ending up in the legal streams now. In the what? The, the lot of flow that would have been in the undocumented stream is now using temporary worker visas and permanent resident visas. Well, in the late 1950s, that was how it was managed. Yep. Um, you mentioned Operation, um, I don't think we should use that term anymore. But, Operation uh, Wetback. Oh, thank o you. Operation yeah. Mojado. <laughs> Operation Mojado. Um, Eisenhower carried out uh, Operation Mojado, uh, but he also more than doubled the size of the Bracero quota. And uh, I, I, if you're interested in that period, it's fascinating and offers many lessons. There's a, a fantastic book called Inside the State by Kitty Calavita, which is uh, the best history of the Bracero program that exists. And what you can see is that the Bracero program was used very actively to, to manage uh, illegal migration. And in fact, the biggest defender of the Bracero program inside the US government was the Border Patrol. And the biggest opponent of the Bracero program was the Department of Labor. Um, now, I, I know that Bracero today has a very, very bad uh, reputation as uh, leading to uh, human rights abuses, worker abuses, and uh, things of that nature. But leaving that aside, it, 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 it instructs, it, there's a lesson that one has to consider uh, the legal migration programs, both in terms of positive analysis and normative analysis. All right, I know we're getting in between all of you and lunch, so why don't we leave it there? Um, let's really thank our panelists. I think this has been a fascinating discussion.